0: Well, uh, we started this uh, fireside
1: chat with the uh, uh, with the keynote speaker a number of years ago, uh, mainly because there's an opportunity to go beyond the speech and really uh, to talk about business philosophy, but also a little bit behind the personal story behind the uh, uh, the, the speaker. Uh, Safe is a, is, a, is an exceptional example of that because he's had quite a personal history in his in his uh, in. His childhood and so forth. So we'll touch a little bit on that, but then move back into the uh, the business side. So before we talk about the uh, business career and what you did at Rockwood and now at Air Products, I'd love to talk a little bit about your personal history, which I learned because we've been friends for a long time. You know, as everyone knows, you were originally from Iran, uh, and uh, you were born in the town of uh, Masad. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your early childhood and and also. Uh, your family and your education. I understand you, you went to a special school that was funded by uh, one of the international oil companies uh, operating in Iran. Maybe you could share a little bit about you know, your, your,
0: your early childhood. Sure, I'd be delighted to do that. Uh, I was, uh, as you said, I was born in Iran in the north-eastern part of the country. Uh, my father was a university professor and we uh, were four brothers. I was the oldest one. Uh, I went to elementary school there and uh, high school until grade 10. Then at uh, that time, I was about 14 years old, uh, the oil companies, this is 1950s, the oil companies that were operating, they were managing the oil in Iran, were a combination of X- 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 Standard Road of New Jersey and BP and Royal Dutch Shell and all that and they were under a lot of pressure from the government to have indigenous Iranians in the oil company management. Obviously, they told the government, well, we can't just catch people from the street and make them managers, we need to educate these people. So they set up a special school uh, right at the refinery in Iran, which was at that time the largest refinery in the world, in Abadan, 400,000 dollars a day. And they would take people when they are about 14 years old in a school which was eight years. So it was equivalent of four years of additional high school and four years of college. But they would select 30 people a year and they all lived in a dorm. So 30 times eight was 250 people. And the school was all in English from day one and you would go through an intense amount of education in humanities, and then enough engineering so that you knew what the refinery is, but not too much that you couldn't sit down and actually design the fraction of tell. but you, you understood that. So I, I, they had a, it was a program they paid for everything, and then once you graduated, you had a guaranteed job, so it was very popular. So the year that I went to, they had something like 6,000 applicants, and they had a very intricate process of choosing the people. So I got selected as one of the 30. I was lucky, and I went to that school. And then I graduated in 1966 from that school. It was great. I had a very good time there. And then uh, I was lucky I graduated on top of the class, so they offered to send me abroad to get a PhD and come back and be a professor at that school. I didn't want to do that for two reasons. One is I didn't want to be a professor, but second thing was that Abaddon is right on the Persian Gulf, it gets 120 degrees in the summer. <laughs> That's <laughs> a good reason. Exciting, exciting place to live for, for, for the rest of your life. <laughs> so, I went to my father, who was not a rich man in middle class, and I told him, I said, look, support me for one semester, and then I'm on my own So, I applied to different schools. My father had a PhD from France. He wanted me to go there, but I wanted to come to America. And I applied to different schools. I had good grades, so I got into MIT and Caltech and Stanford, and then I got the brochures, and MIT had sent me this beautiful picture of Boston with the snow. And Stanford was this beautiful beach with the guy with the surfboard. It wasn't a difficult decision, so I decided to go to Stanford. And uh, I, uh, I, you know, after one semester, I did get a scholarship, so it wasn't dependent on my father. And I stayed at the Stanford for about four and a half years. And in that four and a half years, I did, got my master's. I worked on my doctorate in engineering. And then I went to the business school. I went to the law school. I did everything. And then I met my current wife. She is an American lady from Brooklyn that you have. Well, I've met a lovely person. (laughs) We are now married for 45 years. Uh, So then I decided to go take take a job. And uh, we got a very nice job in uh, San Diego. And I was working and I was very happy. Paid $20,000 a year in 1970, which was a lot of money at that time. But then in 1971, uh, my wife encouraged me that, uh, well, I want to see where you are from. Let's go to Iran and see what happens. If things work out, they work out. If they don't work out, they can always come back. Now,
1: that's very unusual because usually that's not something that a wife says. Let's go to your home country, right? Mm -hmm. Especially (laughs) Especially especially if you
0: are a nice Jewish lady from (laughs) Brooklyn. (laughs) 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 I I managed to marry an unusual person. She is the best thing which has ever happened to my life. By the way, we,
1: we do have at least two things in common, right? One is I was supposed to get at MIT, but didn't, and you didn't, which my parents never forgave me for going to MIT, going to Yale instead of MIT. <coughs> and The other is your wife and my wife come from very similar backgrounds, as you know. So, sure. so we have at least maybe those are the only two things
0: in <laughs> <laughs> common. Uh, that's great. But anyway, so we did go back, and then uh, for three years, I did end up teaching at the university, yes. teaching heat transfer, fluid yes. mechanics, and all of those kind of good things. But then in 1973, as you know, oil prices went through the roof and a huge amount of income coming into the country. And the Shah was very interested in industrializing the country, which was the right thing to do. And for him, industrialization meant steel. We need to have a steel company. So he took the president of the university, made him the chairman of the steel company, and he liked me, so I was the number two employee of the steel company. And the first day I went to his office, I said, the irony of this is that between the two of us, we don't know the difference between a pellet and a billet. <laughs> <laughs> Given the job of running a steel company. But we grew the company from the two of us uh, to about 300,000 people by 1979. Yeah. And we started building these big plants. And uh, I, had the, I ended up, uh, because my boss became the minister, and I ended up at age 35 running this company, which is probably the biggest job I'll ever have. Because uh, we were talking about a huge amount of money. Uh, it was the biggest industry after the World Company. Did. So uh, life was great. I mean, we had uh, got people from 100 different countries building these giant plants, and uh, I was having a lot of fun doing that. But uh, then uh, the world changed, as you know, and uh, some of us didn't think that anything would happen because. We were arrogant enough to sit down and say, how can a bunch of uh, uncivilized, bearded, uh, unwashed, one take over the country? Mm-hmm. But they did. But once they did, that wasn't the place for me. I had a very difficult time getting out of there because I actually had to escape because- your you, your wife? And child were already out, but then
1: you. Yeah, you that was the only the only part yeah. that I was lucky because
0: if they were not, you would have been yeah. killed. Yeah. Because I couldn't have escaped. Yeah. But I had to literally walk out of their own foot. It was about took me about six months to do that. They don't like people like us. I mean, they have killed about two million people. Anybody who has more than high school education is not good enough. They and they don't believe in putting people in jail. You oh, know, you're against us. You're against God. If you're against God, you should be you should die. It's very simple process but uh so i, I but fortunately i was lucky well, very lucky because if you count hundred of my friends probably i was two out of the hundred who survived but uh, then i uh, i got myself to europe and my wife had heard from me for about six months but she came and we went to the american embassy they were very nice they knew who i was i got a visa, came to the U.S. and started from scratch, with uh, borrowing a $1,000 from my father-in-law to buy pots and pans and <laughs> start a life, and uh, what did it worked out. You know, uh, I I know I
1: have a few friends who were grew up in Iran before the revolution and so forth, and they have some very, very distinct memories and feelings about the impact they have. Are there any some things that you can think of <laughs> you know, from that experience and growing up in Iran. And Iran was a very different country before the revolution, which is a, that's a very sad part of the story, right? Which was, it was a, you know, so vital. Any comments about
0: the influence that your upbringing in Iran has on sort of you today and your career? Yes, I mean, I think the event in Iran, my upbringing, I was very lucky. I, was, I had a very happy childhood, maybe a very, very stable family and all that kind of stuff. But my experience with what happened in Iran, the most important thing is that situations are not as stable as you think. And that applies to companies too. Sometimes you say, how can a company which has been around for, you know, how can GM go bankrupt? They can, yeah. and it can happen just like that. And everybody was sitting in Iran, me included, saying, my God, here we have the imperial government Military. F sixteens, F fifteens, how can this thing fall apart in two months? But it did. So you always have to keep your eyes on the ball about how stable the organization is and never end the underestimate that. That's one thing. The second thing is that it my experience it gives you a little bit of uh, you become fearless because I always everybody I worked for said don't threaten about firing me because nothing can be worse than what I went through. this about that. It gives you a little bit more self-confidence to be able to, you know, to deal with the change. You know, my
1: father, when I was growing up, he went through a lot of dramatic changes like you. I won't go to the detail, but, and survived them, but he, when I asked him what's the most important advice you give him, and I expected he would say, well, you know, good, good education and so forth, he said, the fact of the matter is the world changes and changes dramatically, and, and he explained that you know, a number of massive changes had happened in his life. So he said, you should assume that there will be big disruptions in your life. If you're lucky, it won't happen, but it is likely to happen. And so you should manage your life so that you can survive those changes and marry a woman who, in fact, who." Uh, who will make it through the changes with you. And it sounds like that. It's of always good thing. advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. always a matter of luck. Yeah. Sometimes you get lucky. Now, you know, there's one part that you skipped in your career before you came back, and that was, which I did some homework here, and that is that uh, when you came out of school, you actually worked on the development of a steam-powered automobile working from, for William Lear, right, uh, who was really the guy who developed mm-hmm. Lear jets. So, hmm.
0: you know, you've left out in a very important part of your career. Well, I, didn't right? be, I, I didn't want to be—I didn't want to take uh, to be, uh, uh, you know, take too much time. But now that you brought it up, I'm—I'm at Stanford. I've gotten married. Now you want to kind of have a life. So I apply for jobs, and here is this guy, Lindy, who had just sold his airplane company to Gates Rubber. It ended up with millions of dollars. And he offered me twice what everybody else offers. So I go work, but I go for an interview and then I'm here at this time, I'm about 20, 25 years old. I love planes <laughs> and this guy has three, I mean, he has his own region. and he puts me in the co-pilot seat and goes for a ride. I was going to take the job. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't even tell you what the salary was yet <laughs> <in> that way, <laughs> <point>, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, then, so I, I had a great time working for him, but what he was determined to do, which was... He, his idea was that uh, internal combustion engine creates a lot of pollution because the combustion in the piston is not complete. Yeah. So you get a lot of energy. But if you have a, a steam-driven automobile in the boiler, you have complete <coughs> combustion. Right. So our, See what 2 comes out. Therefore, why don't we go and make a steam powered oven? So we tried to uh, make that happen. We designed the engine. I designed the the boiler, I have a patent on that. Uh, So we could fit everything. He wanted to fit everything into a race car that was in the numbers. So we kept saying, look, we can design the boiler, we can design the engine to do 700 horsepower and fit it in a race car. But for God's sake, there is no way you can have a radiator that can dance this our seat. So we kept talking to him about, let's make a bus. it was a bus in other <laughs> room, but he didn't want to do anything. <laughs> a lot less sexy, right? So after a while, I got frustrated because I went and took the job in San Diego. <laughs> now,
1: back to your regular career. So when you uh, came back, you started at VOC, right? Which in fact, so not everyone knows that in fact you had a long career in... Yeah, about in 20 industry, years. 20 years at VOC. Yes. Uh, how about that transition? Because now, now, you know, you've worked work steam engine, but then it's
0: steel, right? And now, how did that happen? Well, that experience was actually quite interesting because I wanted to get a job in the United States which was very low visibility because uh, it is crazy. You never knew, you you get a high visibility job, they can't kill you here. So I I was very interested to have a low visibility job at the time. So I ended up getting this job with BOC, with their division which was located in a place that Scott is very familiar with, which is in the middle of nowhere, called (laughs) St. Mary's, Pennsylvania. It's a town (laughs) of 700 people so i go from uh, being the job that i had you know getting a project engineer job and bring my family to this town of 700 people (laughs) quite a culture change but uh, we had a good time very good people we were very welcome and it was uh, very very nice and my son had a great time and uh, we really enjoyed ourselves it wasn't much of a difficult thing but then you know, I went through the ranks pretty soon and then moved to Pittsburgh, and then back to New York.
1: Now, the next big change was you were becoming the CEO of Rockwood, right? Tell me how that experience—and of course, that's very different because Rockwood was was uh, was was a private equity-owned uh, company. So tell talk about that transition and, and and what it was like. And in many ways, it was very different, right? That is uh,
0: that is actually that that was a real change. Uh, uh, the way it came about was that I was uh, you know with VOC and then I'd gone run this big company, GKN, twelve billion dollar company. And then I get the co- and I was using this gentleman at Corn Ferry to be hiring people from us. Mm-hmm. So one day he calls me and he says, You have to go see handicrap. Why do you to do that? He said, No, j- just go see the guy. I said, Why? He said, I believe me. You, you should do that. So he organizes that. And then I then talked to him and I was very impressed with the way they were thinking about creating value. <coughs> which is a little bit in the lines because I was talking So that was it, I didn't hear anything, but then two months later they said that well oh, you might have a job. Mm-hmm. It took me literally nine months to decide because at the time, the company that they were proposing for me to run was $750 million a year of sale. And I was CEO of a $12 billion company. So you know, it's kind of the scale is very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it took me nine months to go through the process because I wanted to meet everybody at the firm, which they were very welcoming, and I wanted to really understand how it. But I got convinced that if I really want to. Have an impact and create some real wealth for myself. Mm-hmm. This was the right thing to do. It was my father-in-law was saying, "You're crazy." And I was saying, "Look, it is a high-risk deal because you're taking a big. Here you have a very comfortable job. and all of You take a big risk, but the reward is big. And uh, and, and the person who encouraged me the most was my boss. He says, "You can't do it. Go do it." And so I took the job, and uh, it was a different experience. I had a lot of time to run the company because I didn't have to spend half of my time like I do right now, Mm -hmm. going and meeting investors and Mm making presentations. So you had a lot of time to actually run the company. And they were very good because they said, look, you perform, we give you the money to expand. Because my deal with them was that, look, I want to take this thing and make it a multi-billion (coughs) dollar company and make it, take it public. I said, so, no, you perform we back you up. And they did. And the other thing that I asked was that I said, look, don't change people on me. I mean, you have four people on my board. Don't change them, because I don't want to re-explain the strategy. And believe from the day I started until the day we finished, the same four people from KKR were on my board. Which was very, very helpful. But then we took the company from 750, made it into a $5 billion company, and I was very happy to... Right, Henry? You know saying? That the EBITDA of the company is now more than the sales from the day we started. But it, it, it was, but it was a different experience, but it taught me a lot quite a bit. It taught me about the fact of what matters, that, for, uh, that substance is what matters, not form. If you have board meetings, the board meeting, if it can be done in five minutes, it's done in five minutes. You don't have to have a three-day board meeting. But the, and, and talk about what matters, Decisions are made quickly. Go do and everything is online. I really enjoyed that and uh, sometimes I miss it But uh, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to do products, run it products running yeah. You know, it's interesting
1: because you started out in Rockwood was a private company for a long time And then there was this decision right because private equity firms, you know, they sure, don't they, wanna, they don't they, they need the liquidity they, they you know, they don't keep it forever and Tell us about the choice to go public uh, rather than sell, and in fact, eventually, you know, KKR was able to sell their shares over time as a public company. Maybe explain why the decision was made to go public, which, by the way, very few chemical companies can go public, so, so it's not a given, it's not a biotech company, right?
0: But you're very right, that was a very important decision, because by 2005, we had grown the company to about three and a half billion. For the, it was a very good company, very profitable company. You could sell it. Mm-hmm. But my point was that look, there is more value to be created. Mm-hmm. But I did understand the desire of the private equity that at some time they have to cash in. Okay. But the deed that we made, which I, I really appreciate, was that we take the company public, but the money that we raise, don't take it up. Let me delever. Mm-hmm. Because these are operating at seven times leverage. As a private company, which yeah. is, nothing wrong with that. I mean, fine. But, but when you become public, if you sell a pound nobody would buy a stock. But they, they took the, we took the money from the IPO and paid down debt, And that gave us room to, to continue to grow the company. And then after about five years, in 2010, then KKR decided to sell their shares. They sold their shares at $40. I told them that, well, you know, you're giving some money on the table, but that's their decision. And then obviously, then four years later, they sold the company for $85. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they still did well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know, I've I no, to top those they guys think, and they, st- they still feel they did well.
0: No, th- this is a, uh, public information. Their cost base in our company was $14 a share. So when they sold it at 40, it was fine. Exactly. Uh, next to last question,
1: so now, you know Rockwood, uh, you know, was was you know was, was sold, engineered, uh, all, all that, and so forth. Uh, now you're on the board of, you know, Air Products. There's the shareholder activists and so
0: forth. How'd you end up then, <laughs> becoming a CEO? Tell that story. Well, that story is actually very interesting because I had and I had no idea who Bill Action an is and I hadn't heard from him at all. So in September of 2013. I got a call from them that we are going to kind of have a shareholder fight with the the proxy and we need some candidates to be on the board who would like to propose you as one of them. I said, sorry, I I don't do that. I I don't want to be part of a fight with a company and so on, I'm not interested. But then a month later, I got a call and said, no, we want to settle with the company. Mm -hmm. And they have agreed to put uh, two people that we would recommend on the board with, I said, well, that's a different story, but I will do it if the board asks. And then the board of their father asked me to join, so I the I joined the board, and then I was part of the selection committee to find the best CEO, and I managed to do it. <laughs> <laughs> didn't
1: you didn't have a super majority vote on the committee. <laughs> Well, it's been a happy story for everyone since. and uh, no, I'm
0: delighted to be to be where I am. Uh, great for people, a great company, and they have a great future. And it's a good experiment to see how you can take a traditional public company and try to run it as if you are running a private, yeah. company. So, it's a good experiment.
1: Last question. I'd like to step back and really ask a more macro question, uh, and that is, you know, obviously the chemical industry, like many, many industries, right, uh, is going through a number of structural changes, but also macro ch- challenges and opportunities. Let's face it, there are challenges, but all- also opportunities, such as, you know, shale gas became an opportunity. So it's not all negative. Uh, you know, what do you think, the, you know, what would you say is the key kinds of macro and structural changes that you think CEOs in the industry, public or private, right, uh, should be focused on and, 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 and what do you think the CEO should do to either take advantage of opportunities or defend against some of these threats? Uh, you
0: know, the question that you're asking me is very relevant. Mm-hmm. Scott was with me. We had a meeting with some of our investors and we got into this, uh, this very question. Mm-hmm. I believe very strongly that the key thing that the CEOs need to do right now is to achieve absolute operational excellence in the company. Because if you are running the company with the minimum amount of cost and reducing your costs, restructuring the company, and you have a business which is running perfectly, then you can survive in the worst of circumstances, and then everything else is great. If you have growth, good, then you make more money. If there are acquisition opportunities, you do them. But if you don't have a company that structurally is not run very well, people are committed, people, then you can't do anything else. So right now, all of us, I think, there is no growth. There will not be growth for a lot, for a while. There is all kinds of totally unpredictable events that can happen in the world that can significantly change everything. We need to focus on operational excellence. Take the hell out of the cost, focus on your core business, and run the ship as well as you can, and then you can survive any new storm. And a lot of companies that they come and they start talking about M&A and I'm going to do this and that, and don't address the actual core of the company, they are not going to, to last because that's, so that would be, that's what be that would be my advice. Well, thank you very thank you. much, David.